Hello and welcome back to Theotivity. My name is Thaddeus and I'm so glad that you've joined us for this episode. Today is an important topic on God and government. But before we jump in, I just wanted to, to consider, did you know who the, um, the greatest female financier was in the Bible? Well, it, w- it had to have been Pharaoh's daughter because she went down to the bank of the Nile and drew out a little prophet. Anyways, today, this topic of God and government is so important for us because we live in a time where more and more Christians are realizing that a lot of Western governments are overreaching their powers. And there's been words such as tyranny and dictatorship um, thrown around. And we need to have a biblical view of government and what is the relationship between God and government, the church and the state. Uh, Today, particularly, we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 13, uh, verses 1 to 7. Now, this is not the be-all, end-all of what the Bible says about government, but it's a very important passage to understand if we're going to start to build a proper theology of government. So, what we're going to look at today is is a couple exegetical considerations, which simply mean out-of-the-text considerations. I'm going to be going to the Greek text, And I think there are some insights that are really important for our interpretation, to have a right interpretation, that we understand these things clearly. So, let's jump on in. The Theotivity Podcast. Theotivity is the place where theology and creativity come together. Here you'll find audio narration of articles, episodes exploring the faith, culture, the arts and media, systematic theology, apologetics, guest interviews with Christian thinkers, creatives, pastors, theologians, and much more. At Theotivity.com, you'll find articles and resources to help you grow in your faith, as well as a portfolio of creative works. Like, share, and subscribe to stay up to date on the latest content. So this episode is actually going to be focused very much on the exegesis of the text and is perhaps a little bit geared more towards maybe leaders, church leaders, pastors, small group leaders, etc., to be able to unpack this verse, these verses properly um, to others. So uh, I'm going to be quoting extensively from some commentaries and taking note of uh, the Greek text where necessary uh, to try to bring out some clarity in the text for our interpretation, because we want to really engage and interact with what is actually being said, not what we think is being said. You might also be wondering why we're talking about God and government on a podcast devoted to theology and creativity. Well, because my focus is also on how our faith interacts with with, um, culture. And, you know, as much as it might be, or at least sound like a boring topic to some creatives, this is important because it affects all of our lives. Uh, For a long time, I disregarded politics and disregarded government as something that was just boring and didn't really seem like it affected me. But, you know, I think uh, if if anything's been made clear over the past two years, it's that it does affect us in very significant ways. And we shouldn't, as Christians, um, detach ourselves from any sphere, really, and meaningful engagement and understanding of these spheres because they are ordained by God. And we're meant to be salt and light to the whole world, to all areas of uh, society and to see them flourish. So it is important for us to consider this. Also, I think that sometimes we underestimate the capacities of Christian creatives. Sometimes creatives are thought of as just these airy fairy, you know, uh, artsy types who don't really think deeply. That's not true. 
I know plenty of creatives who are amazingly deep thinkers and want to be challenged intellectually. I mean, come on, think about the the, the creatives such as in the past, in the uh, the Renaissance area, like Michelangelo and Leonardo, right? And Da Vinci, yeah, well, that's Leonardo, right? Um, <laughs> they were amazing geniuses in several different disciplines, right? Not just in the arts and making pretty pictures. And you as a creative and a Christian primarily should also likewise want to develop your mind and your theology in all of these different areas. So if you're a creative um, listening to this now, don't sell yourself short, right? Continue to develop your mind, your heart, your understanding of God's word and its application to every area of life. Because even though it may not um, seem like it's directly affecting your creativity or whatever it is, believe me, it has massive implications to your life. And it's another way that we um, grow in our discipleship and our understanding of what that means, because Jesus calls us to disciple nations. He noticed that in Matthew 28, he doesn't just say disciple individuals, but nations. What's a nation? A nation is way more than just a collection of individuals. It involves culture, it involves education, it involves um, media, and it involves politics and government, right? So if we were to learn how to disciple nations, we have to study these things. In recent times, with COVID mandates and restrictions affecting all areas of society, it has gotten a lot of Christians talking again about Romans 13. Uh, you know, Josh Moe and the Christian down the, the road probably never had um, posted any statuses about Romans 13. But these days, it seems to be the hot topic of the day. And its application to the relationship between the church and the state is very important. I've seen many poor expositions of this passage and even more lamentable applications of, this, of erroneous er understandings of this passage. Uh, many have ripped verses from Romans 13 out of their proper context to argue for their particular understandings about politics and government. However, if we're to be faithful Bereans, we must closely examine the scriptures to see if these things really are so. So, in this episode, we'll be mainly focusing on an exegesis of the text of Romans 13 verses 1 to 7. It'll be good to have your Bibles with you so you can follow along. And we'll also be considering its relevance to the current discussion. While some applications will be drawn, the purpose is not to flesh out a fully formed theology of government as, or of civil disobedience or obedience or even of politics. Uh, that's perhaps for another time, maybe a, 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 a series of episodes that we'll do to follow up at a later time. Instead, though, for this episode, the focus is going to be on trying to faithfully interpret the text and its implications. So may God help us all act in honorable ways in our societies and as Christian citizens of our earthly and heavenly king, uh, kingdoms and cities. Okay, so before we jump in, let me read the passage of scripture that we're going to be taking a look at for us so that we just have it fresh in our mind. Okay, I'm going to actually be starting from chapter 12 just to give a little bit of context before we get to chapter 13. So I'm starting from verse 17 in chapter 12. Paul says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If, uh, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. That's going to be important for later in this episode. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, 
give him something to drink. For by doing so, you heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. This is the start of of chapter 13 now. And notice that it just flows straight in from chapter 12. So it says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. If you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only for, for, to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. And that's what we're going to be looking at today, this passage of scripture. Particularly focusing in on chapter 13 verses 1 to 7. Okay, so firstly, context is key. Now, some wrongly argue that because Paul wrote Romans 13 to Christians living under an evil civil government that was brutally persecuting and even executing Christians, that Christians, therefore, should always submit in everything, even unjust edicts and laws, to any government, even tyrannical governments, since he's commanded such submission um, to the Christians who were living at Rome under Rome's tyranny in the first century. Sounds like a compelling argument. However, this argument is actually anachronistic. You see, contextually, Paul writes Romans around 58 AD. This was before the Neronian persecutions broke out around 65 AD. So to argue that, you know, Paul is writing to Christians who are being persecuted under Nero, who was one of the first emperors to actually uh, persecute Christians intentionally, is a little anachronistic because uh, Romans was written before that period of time, before. Uh, in fact, uh, Paul writes in Romans um, during the first half of Nero's 15-year reign. Um, so Richard Longnecker in his uh, Greek commentary on Romans actually comments this, that um, it was during the first half of Nero's 15-year reign in 54 to 68 as Roman emperor that, that Paul wrote Romans. For it was during those early years of his reign that Nero was honored by the people of Rome for his clemency and justice, largely because he had restored the rule of law in the Roman Senate. He had corrected many abuses and inequities among the people and had provided a time of peace for most of the provinces in the Roman Empire. That's from Longnecker's commentary, his Greek commentary on Romans. So there was some political unrest in Rome in the late 50s, which made the, the Christians wonder about what their relationship should be to the state whether as people who are newly in Christ and confessing him as Lord and not Caesar, uh, whether they should pay taxes and honor the city governmental authorities. This was a real struggle for the early church and for early Christians. There, there's a widespread understanding, actually, amongst the early church fathers who wrote, um, who said that there were Christian congregations in Rome 
who were actually overly enthusiastic was the way that they put it uh, about their new life in Christ and the new age inaugurated by Christ that they required rejection of everything to do with this age, including human government and taxes. Actually, Leon Morris, uh, another commentator, he notes that, quote, it is conjectured that some of them may have had ideas akin to those of the Palestinian zealots who recognized no king but God and would pay taxes to no one but God. That's in Leon Morris's uh, commentary on the Epistle to the Romans in the PNTC uh, series. Also, an earlier edict by Emperor Claudius in 49 AD had prohibited Jews and Christians from holding meetings. And there was a lingering resentment against the government by these early Christians. It's also significant to note that in 58 AD, the Roman historian Tacitus, in his annals, uh, reports that uh, there was a great outcry by the people in Rome against the city's taxation system. So, Paul responds to this situation in the early church by offering a corrective here in Romans to these sentiments and his argument in chapter 13 continues with any break from the previous chapter. That's really important if we're going to look at the context properly. Um, Richard Longnecker in his commentary again says this, he notes, he says, quote, it may legitimately be argued that Paul himself, one, viewed his appeals of th uh, chapter 13 verses 1 to 7 as highly significant contextualizations of his Christian love ethic, um, which he had set out in chapter 12, and two, believed that these ethical appeals would be particularly relevant for believers in, G in Jesus at Rome in their present situation. So he exhorts his addressees to be subject to the governing authorities, to pay their legitimate taxes, revenues, and tolls, and to respect and honor their city officials, end quote. Actually, John Calvin um, comments helpfully on this particular passage. He says this, quote, there are always some restless spirits who believe that the kingdom of Christ is properly exalted only when all earthly powers are abolished and that they can enjoy the liberty which he has given them only if they have shaken off every yoke of human slavery. This error, however, possessed in the, the minds of the Jews more than others, for they thought it, it a disgrace that the offspring of Abraham, whose kingdom had flourished greatly before the coming of the Redeemer, should continue in bondage after his appearing. It is probable that these reasons led Paul to establish the authority of the magistrates with the greater care." End quote. So this context is really important for us. Uh, similarly, uh, because today, there are many Christians who harbor deep resentment against civil government for the many wrongs that they've inflicted upon us during these past two years of COVID and lockdowns and restrictions and mandates and all of these things, right? However, like the Christians in Rome, we must be reminded that though government officials may abuse their authority, the ordered structure of authorities to maintain a just society, that's a good thing. That's instituted by God and something that we should not resent, but desire to see it flourish biblically. So let me say this upfront and very clear. Christians are not anarchists. We want a well-ordered society and realize that God has instituted hierarchies of authority within the various spheres to accomplish this, especially in a fallen world. Furthermore, this is one contextualized application of Paul's Christian love ethic from chapter 12, verses 9 to 21. Go read it uh, for yourself. For the Christian, in spite of their hurts and resentment, we don't repay evil for evil, but with good. That's what he says in chapter 12 at the end. And we entrust vengeance to the Lord, 
through his appointed instrument of earthly vengeance. That is, the civil government who bears the sword. And we're going to get into that now. So let's take a look at verse 1 and his primary command to be subject. So the, ver the, the verb used in verse 1 uh, for be subject is actually hupotasso in the Greek. According to Bidag, which is one of the standard and most well-recognized Greek lex lexicons, right? Uh, for Romans 13, 1 and 5, uh, its entry says this, that, it, that, that hupotasso is of submission involving a recognition of an ordered structure and with the data of the entity to whom or which uh, appropriate respect, respect is shown. And that's, that's just saying that the, the, the grammar of that sentence says that is to the authorities, that this hupotassoing should happen, right? This recognition of an ordered structure. And other examples that you can see this usage is, uh, for example, in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 34. Now, this verb is an imper imperative, and thus it's the main command opening off this section and should be understood to set the tone of the passage. So since this is the main verb of this section, it's like Paul's thesis statement, right? And the rest of the section expounds on what it looks like to be subject. Being subject does not look like the rejection of all earthly authorities and taxes as some of the Roman Christians were tempted to think. While there are important limitations to civil government and to our obligations and obedience to them, the overall thrust of Paul here is to command subjection to the authority structure over us. Notice I'm using a very intentional word, subjection here. This is more clearly evidenced by the use of the verb tassel, which is translated as instituted by the ESV. Now, Bidag defines it as to bring about an order of things by arranging, particularly of an authority structure. Thus, what Paul is primarily referencing is that the structure of authority in society is instituted by God as a way of expressing and carrying out his order in the world. However, the distinction of his use of commands here is important. Paul does not use the verb to obey, but rather uses a military term which denotes subjection to a hierarchy of authority structure. If he wanted to say obey, Greek has that word. He could have said obey, right? Here, I appreciate actually the ESV's translation, which consistently translates it as to be subject to. Our disposition as Christians should be one of willing submission to God's instituted ordering of society into hierarchies of authority over us. The Roman centurion in Matthew 8, for example, understood this as well as we. We should. Uh, now, we know that this is the intended meaning because I know there will be some objections to this and saying, that, oh, no, it just means, you know, to submit and to obey always, right? Uh, but we know that this is the intended meaning because of similar usage of this same very verb, which occurs for submission or subjection of wives to husbands in Ephesians 5.22 or Colossians 3.18, Titus 2.5 and 1 Peter 3.1. Uh, it is also used in Jesus to his parents, being subject to his parents in Luke 2.51 and to children to be subject to their parents in Hebrews 12, 9, uh, slaves to masters in Titus 2, 9, and 1 Peter 2, 18, and also to the will of God and to his law, we're to be in, subject, in subjection to that in Romans 8, 7, and 10, 3. And also you see it used of subjection of the younger to the elders in 1 Peter 5, 5. So all of these different passages show us the usage of this verb that we know that it means this idea of being in subjection to ordered hierarchy. 
So perhaps one of the best illustrations of it being uh, in regard to an ordered structure of hierarchy is actually in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 28. It says there that all things are subjected to Christ and Christ is subjected to God. There the verb is used consistently to describe this ordered structure of command and authority. Now, because of this usage in uh, passages, for example, dealing about husbands and wives, right? To, for wives to be subject to their husbands as the head of the household, we would never argue that that means blind obedience in everything, blind submission in everything, even, you know, commands to sin, for example, right? So likewise, we can't make that argument for Paul's usage of the verb here in Romans 13. Let's pause there and talk a little bit about delegated authority and God's governance. So another important concept to understand here is that of delegated authority. Richard Longnecker in his Greek commentary on, the Roman, on Romans states, quote, These primary reasons are introduced by the explanatory conjunction gar, or for, and twice employ the prepositional phrase upotheo, by God, thereby laying particular emphasis on God's sovereignty in the appointment and establishment of human governments and their officials, end quote. So ultimately, it is God who governs the nations. Psalm 22 verse 28 says, For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. You can see also 1 Chronicles 29, 12, 2 Chronicles 26, Psalms 9 uh, verses 7 and 8, uh, Psalm 47 verse 2, uh, and, and 7 to 8, uh, chapter 66 verse 7, Psalm 67 verse 4, Psalm 103 verse 19, See especially Daniel chapter 4, verse 32 and 35, and 1 Timothy 6 and verse 15. Kingship belongs to the Lord, right? He's the one who rules. And God governs through his ordained means of delegated authorities in society. Leon Morris, in his commentary, uh, is very helpful. He says this, quote, Ordered government is not a human device, but something of divine origin. The servants of God must accordingly submit to his laws. Paul regards rulers not as autonomous, but as established by God, verse 1. The ruler is God's servant, verse 4. This gives the ruler a special dignity, but at the same time stresses that his position is a subordinate one. He is to do not whatever he wishes, but what is the will of God for him in his situation, end quote. Let's talk about authority given, not taken, and limited government. This is a very important concept. Jesus says to Pilate in John 19, 11, as he's before Pilate and Pilate says, you know, hey, don't you know I could let you go? I have power to do this right now. And Jesus responds and says this, you would have no authority over me at all unless it's been given to you from above. So Jesus there is affirming that the, this, this civil magistrate, Pilate in this case, his authority is given to him by God. So therefore, since civil government's authority is given to it by God, then it's illegitimate for them to take it in spheres that has not been given to them in. Does that make sense? Because government's power and authority is given to it by God, is delegated to them by, to, to them by God in certain specific spheres, is therefore illegitimate for them to take it in spheres that he's not given it to them. So therefore, the rule of, a, of government is, is necessarily limited by God because he's the one who gives authority. We should not assume that the government has the right to take what has not been given. And that's what a lot of Christians tend to do. They just assume that the government has the right to take 
authority in all these different spheres. But we shouldn't just assume that. You see, the Bible has a word for that, for taking what's not rightfully yours, for taking what's not given to you. It's called stealing. Neon Morris comments this. He says this in his commentary. Quote, All authority comes in the end from God. This means that the authority of the state is delegated and not an absolute authority. That authority must always be respected and that an uncritical obedience is actually impossible. Anything in the directions given by authority that is manifestly not from God shows that the authority has exceeded its lawful function. End quote. Thus, when a government or any authority tries to exercise authority outside of its God-given sphere and role, it is acting illegitimately. As God's servant, it must not go beyond the sphere of authority that God has given it. It can, however, as with other leaders in other spheres of authority, they can give advice, they can give suggestions, they can inform, etc. Right? They can try to influence the proper authority in that sphere through um, discussion, right? Or debate even. But to take that authority would be improper. This is why we have the problem today of government overreach. The government is taking what has not been properly given to it. And we're going to talk about what is the proper sphere of governmental authority right from this text in Romans 13. But I want you to understand that concept, right? That government's authority is necessarily limited because its authority is delegated or given to it by God. And therefore, it can't take authority that has not been explicitly given in Scripture. Let's talk a little bit about what type of authority. So what type of authority does Paul have in mind as he's writing Romans 13? It's interesting to note that the participle used adjectively together with authority is hooper echo, right? And the ESV translates it as governing. And a couple other translations also take this sort of line. Now, this verb, though, can mean to be at a point higher than another in a linear scale or to be in a controlling position or to have power over to be in authority, right? So this is the adjective to the authorities that Paul uses. However, it also can mean to surpass in quality or value or to be better than or surpass or excel, right? BDAG also has that in its uh, list of, of definitions. And Luanida's lexicon actually has the entry, quote, to be of surpassing or exceptional value, to be exceptionally valuable or to surpass in value, to be better, okay? Why is this important? Well, while the sense of governing authorities is within the range of meanings of how you could interpret this phrase, and this is one that actually many commentators do take, this third meaning um, is actually pertinent for our considerations. You see, it's not one foreign to Paul's usage, and other commentators have noted this as well too. He uses it this way in Philippians 2.3, when he says to consider others more highly, or hupa echo is the, the verbal form used there, right, than ourselves. And in Philippians 4.7, of the peace of God which surpasses or is better than hupa echo, right, uh, than all understanding. So we see in those verses that the adjective has to do with the excellence of the thing it describes. It's, it's the same Greek verb used in 1 Peter 2.13, which could be understood as honor the emperor as excellent or uppermost in quality. If this is the intended meaning here in Romans 13.1, then what Paul would be saying is actually this, be subject to the more excellent or surpassing in quality 
or better authorities. He would be referring to the authorities which perform their duties with moral excellence and godly reverence. So thus, James Wilson, in his exposition of Romans 13, uh, concludes this. He says this, quote, as distinctly define, defining the character of the powers here intended, and as limiting to such the subjection here enjoined, the excelling powers, that is, powers possessing a due measure of the qualifications requisite to the rightful exercise of the power of the civil rule, end quote. I think there is a compelling case to be made here for this understanding, especially as we consider that Paul lays out a prescriptive case for what God-established government's rule should be, what it should look like. When authorities act in accordance with God's law, they have divine approval and authority behind them, and thus they are considered excellent. We must ask then, in context, which understanding of these, this term fits better? Is it simply the governing authorities? Or is it the excellent authorities? I think it's the latter, but it's worth consideration, serious consideration for those who are trying to make sense of this verse. Let's move on to verse 2, the purpose of civil government. So verse 2 begins with a hoste, right? Which is a conjunction. Um, the ESV translated, translates it as therefore. However, this is a translation that obscures the link here and how it relates these two clauses. These, this conjunctive word relates the first and second clause. And this conjunction could actually be understood as so that or consequently, right? Actually, the USB, uh, UB, sorry, UBS, USB, uh, handbook on translation comments that, quote, the force of the particle is to introduce a conclusion based on the judgment of the previous verse, right? Um, so Lou and Nida comment on this word that it is a marker of result, often in context implying an intended or indirect purpose. And BDAG and other lexicons add nuance that it, it marks a clause of intended result. Really important. So because of that, it affirms that what Paul is expressing here is prescriptive of what civil government's function should be. That is, he's saying those authorities that exist have been instituted by God so that right? Hoste, right? So that those resisting the authorities resist what God has appointed and will receive government. He's implying the intended uh, or indirect purpose. He's, or the, the intended result, right? Of the authorities existing and being instituted by God is so that the intended result is that those resisting the authorities end up resisting what God has appointed and will receive judgment. Paul is expressing what is the consequence of resisting civil authorities that he is instituted for a specific purpose? So translating hoste as therefore in English can wrongly imply that, it, why is this important, right? So the reason it's important and I'm, why I'm stressing on this is that it could imply that what's being said is this, that because God has instituted these authorities, therefore any resistance is automatically resistance to God. I don't think that's what it's saying. That's a, that's a wrong way to understand that link of the two clauses. Let's talk a little bit about whether Paul has in mind the office or the officer in this particular passage. So the usage of the definite article in the plural, teesousia, right? Uh, the authorities is an indication, I think, that the office is primarily in view here, right? So understand this, right? That it's the office that is in view. Actually, later on in Romans 13, he'll address the office holder. But I think right now in this present verse, he's 
talking about the office. He says the authorities, plural, that is the civil offices which govern our society. This also concurs perfectly with the usage of tassel in regards to the institution of the ordered structure of authority, right? The specific office bearers may be good or bad, but the office itself, as far as it's designed by God, is a good part of his ordering of society. Leon Morris is helpful again. He says this, quote, The man who has been often in prisons in the Roman Empire and had frequently been flogged, see for example 2 Corinthians 11.23, was not unaware that the authorities can be unjust. For that matter, he knew that he himself had been unjust when he was one of the authorities that persecuted the church. But here, he is writing about the state's essential nature, about what it, what it should be, and in some measure at least is. Rulers may misuse the authority God has given them, but Paul's point is that uh, does not alter the fact that it was God who gave it to them. People are often tempted to evade their civic responsibilities, and not only in the first century. Paul reminds them of the significance of those responsibilities. Order is important, and the state embodies order, end quote. So, this understanding is further strengthened by Paul's play on words, which is actually obscured in English. In Greek, the, the phrase translated, whoever resists, is um, ho antitesomenos. Right? So this is actually a substantive participle, and it, it, the verb that it derives from is actually antitasso. Right? So tasso from that previous verb that we just talked about. Right? Uh, it's in contradiction to tasso as it was used before. The tasso mean, meaning bringing about an ordered state by arrangement of authority structures, right? So therefore, Paul in using this play on words, I think he's referring to the person who opposes or is anti-ordered authority. He's referring, I think, to anarchists, right? When he says this, this person who resists, whoever resists the authority, right? He's talking about uh, anar anarchists, in other words. Uh, or he's rebuking anarchist tendencies, perhaps, against God's ordering of societies by means of authority structures in civil government. Therefore, simply pointing out where office bearers may fail and offering a critique or even a rebuke when necessary is not re the resistance that Paul has in mind here. Indeed, even Jesus himself called Herod a fox in Luke 13, 32, and John the Baptist reserved some very strong words for those in authority. He actually lost his head rebuking Herod for his sin. See Luke 3 verse 19 and Matthew 14 verses 1 to 13. So what Paul is writing here about those resisting authority is what he does not have in mind is simply those who may critique them rightfully for their sinful um, behavior or even excesses. John Chrysostom who actually died in the, in the early 5th century, in his homilies on Romans, recognizes that it's the office or the power which is ordained and approved by God. So this is not some new invention or new interpretation of this verse. Um, it's not necessarily the officer in mind. Chrysostom actually writes highly of God's institution of civil authority to maintain order and justice in society as an honorable and noble function. Yet, it is possible to have evil and wicked officers holding a legitimate and honorable office, which is ordained by God. Thus, we are to respect and honor the office. But the officer may be critiqued and even called to repentance when they go apart from God's design for that office. 
Chrysostom actually comments this, quote, Hence, he does not say, for there is no ruler but from God. But it is the, the thing he speaks of and says, there is no power but of God. And the powers that be are ordained of God. End quote. Let's move on to verse 3. Not a terror to good, but to bad. So notice again, the connecting word linking this argument for, right? Um, or because. Paul is continuing his argument that the authorities have been instituted by God so that, remember Hoste from that previous section, those who are anti-order or, or anarchists, um, that they would receive judgment because, so this is the linking road in, in verse 3, because, why, why would this happen? Because the rulers are not a terror, or they shouldn't be a terror to good works, but to bad. You see, this is the normative function of government that God intends. He's still speaking of what government should do, not necessarily describing what governments always do, as we clearly know, right? And when the government acts as it should, Christians should joyfully be subject to them. Now, later in this verse, he points to the office bearer. He says, do what is good, right? And you will receive praise from him. And Paul's use of the pronouns autes, which is feminine genitive singular, points back to the closest antecedent, which is teixusian, right? Which is also feminine genitive singular. That's just fancy Greek words and grammar for saying that what he has in mind in that particular passage is the office bearer, right? Paul moves from the question literally, but do you desire not to fear the authorities? To then saying that you should receive praise or approval from the office bearer, of that authority when you do good. And so this doesn't always happen though in our fallen societies, but that's what should happen according to God's good design. And just imagine how amazing of a society that would be if our office bearers, our civil magistrates, the, the office bearers themselves were to actually reward what is good and give approval to it. Again, this is important to note that in Greek, this is one continuous line of argu argumentation connected by linking the linking words that we noted before. So we can't divorce these clauses from each other. Some people expo uh, trying to uh, exegete this, this passage can rip verses one and two out from their context and make it seem like Paul is saying that we owe unlimited obedience and blind subjection, uh, I mean, submission, right? But that's not what it's saying. Richard Longnecker in his Greek commentary offers a helpful summary of Paul's reasons for Christians to be subject to the officials. Firstly, since the ultimate purpose of human governments and human rulers is the welfare of those they govern, Christians need not fear them, but are to be submissive to them. See verse 3. Secondly, since human governments and their officials have a mandate to promote the good on behalf of those they govern, Christians need to support and encourage them. See verse 4. Right? Human governments and human rulers have a God-given authority to bear the sword and the function as as agents of wrath in punishing people who do evil. <clears throat> Christians are not to take retributive justice into their own hands and become vigilantes, right? But rather are to submit to the God-established governmental authorities in this matter. See the second half of verse 4. <clears throat> Paul's argument is that government is established by God in a fallen and sinful world to prevent and restrain the anarchy which would happen were sinful humanity left to run amok. Now, for other examples of this, you can see Genesis 9, 6, Ezra 7, 26, Proverbs 21, 15, Proverbs 28, 2, Proverbs 29, 4, Acts 25, 11, 
Romans 13.4 is where we're at right now and 1 Peter 2.14. Now, this brings up the obvious question. Should we always obey the government? Some have wrongfully used this passage in an what I'm going to call an absolutist fashion, right? To justify that any sort of human government should be always obeyed in an unlimited, unqualified way. Actually, it's interesting that some liberal theologians have even used this passage to justify Hitler and his maniacal rule, which resulted in the Holocaust and the Blitzkrieg, uh, which was the invasions of other nations in World War II. This is what happens when Christians take just the first two verses of this chapter in isolation from the rest of the context and infer a blind and complete submission to any authority which may happen to exist. Actually, as um, James Wilson comments, he says this quote, no doctrine could be more agreeable than this to tyrants, this doctrine of unlimited obedience, right? And to all that panders to unholy power. For if this be Paul's meaning, there's no despot, no usurper, no bloody conqueror, no, uh, but could plead the divine sanction. And more than this, the devil himself could lay the teachings of Paul under contribution to enforce his preeminently unholy authority. An interpretation which leads to such monstrous conclusions that would bind the nations to the footstool of power with iron chains and utterly crush every free aspiration that would invest with the sanctions of the, the, the divine name, the most flagrant usurpation and the most unrelenting despotism stands self-condemned. Indeed, I agree. We must reject such a conception of unlimited governmental power. This is an important point to make clear in our current cultural moment, where governments have been increasingly growing into an all-powerful nanny state, and the indoctrination of the populace through public schools and media has continued to propagate this sort of ideology. This is also part of the challenge we're contending with as we seek to preach this text apologetically in this culture. However, before we jump off to try to build a theology of civil disobedience from this text, as Joseph Fitzmaier notes in his commentary, quote, the supposition running throughout verses 1 to 7 is that civil authorities are good and are conducting themselves rightly in seeking the interests of the political community. Paul does not envisage the possibility of either a totalitarian or a tyrannical government or one failing to cope with the just rights of individual citizens or of a minority group. He insists merely on one aspect of the question, the duty of subjects to duly constitute a legitimate authority. He does not discuss the duty or responsibility of civil authorities to the people governed, apart from one minor reference in verse 4. Moreover, the concept of legitimate civil disobedience is beyond his ken. Paul is not discussing in exhaustive fashion the relation of Christians to governing authorities. He is silent about possible conflicts and the limits of earthly authority. End quote. So thus, I, I don't believe that the main point of this passage is an instruction manual for civil disobedience, but rather is a prescription for righteous subjection to God's ordering of society in a fallen world. So don't mishear me. Even though I'm bringing up these points, I still recognize that Paul is commanding us to subjection, but we have to rightly understand what is meant by that. As Richard Longnecker summarizes in his Greek commentary, he says, quote, to assume that in uh, chapter 13, verse 1 to 7, Paul is presenting a full-blown form of a Christian theology regarding Christians and the state, as has often been argued, 
uh, or that here in in chapter 13 verses 3 to 4 he is justifying the existence of all human governments and the actions of all their officials as has also sometimes been asserted is not only to ignore but also to misrepresent the purpose and particularity of his hortatory statements in these passages end quote paul's purpose here is not to present a fully developed christian theology of government thus we should not miss his overall tone and thrust to be in subjection, as we previously discussed. Christians are not anarchists, yet equally we must therefore not treat this passage as if it's the only word that God has given us regarding the relationship, our relationship to earthly governments. Let's talk just briefly about civil disobedience. While it's not the thrust of Romans 13, we have to briefly consider it, right? This concept of civil disobedience. Uh, although this is not gonna be a full treatment, and perhaps we'll talk a little bit more about that in future episodes. Many Christians in the early church were put to death for defying the civil government. Some accounts are even recorded in Acts. For example, Acts 5 verses 17 to 32 with Peter and the apostles before the Jewish leadership and Acts 17 where the mob says, quote, Jason has received them and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, seeing that there is an, another king, Jesus. One important thing to note in these passages is that the Christian response to tyranny and illegitimate governmental commands is peaceful and passive resistance, not violent revolution. Robert Mounts, in his commentary, offers a good summary. He says, quote, Government sometimes oversteps its rightful domain. When this happens, the believer will find it impossible to obey the ruler. The believer's ultimate allegiance is to God. Wherever the demands of secular society clearly violate this higher allegiance, the Christian will act outside the law. This, of course, must not be done in a cavalier fashion. End quote. That's Robert Mounts in his commentary on Romans. So at the very least, there must be a category in each Christian's theology for passive and peaceful resistance to tyranny. However, an absolutist understanding of the Christian submission to any and all governmental commands would be lacking to be able to make sense of, for example, the, the apostles disregarding the, the commands to stop preaching the gospel in Acts 5. Or how about the Hebrew midwives uh, lying and disobeying the king's orders to execute the firstborn in, in uh, male, ch male children in Exodus 1, right? Uh, or, or the fact that Paul spends much of his time in prison for his run-ins with the Roman government. And, or how about the actions of Daniel and pretty much the whole book of Daniel, right? Uh, the, the whole book of Daniel is a lot of examples of um, Christians, believers, defying the government, the state of that time, but in a holy and dignified manner. As James Wilson notes this, he says, quote, The commands of a maniac or a drunken father may be disregarded. The wife or even the children taking the government into the into their own hands. Much more may institutions and laws be disregarded when these run counter either in their constitution or administration to the divine law and thus tend to the manifest injury of the commonwealth." End quote. So there are two main criteria for civil disobedience. So you're probably asking, okay, when, when can I disobey? Just a reminder, the thrust of Romans 13 is to be in subjection, but we're taking a little side detour here to talk a little bit about civil disobedience. I believe there are two clear criteria for civil disobedience that must be met. Firstly, when the government commands what God forbids or forbids what God commands, then they must be resisted and disobeyed. 
for we have to obey God rather than men. And secondly, so that first one is really, really easy. I think all Christians would agree on that, that if government commands us to sin, nope, not doing it. I'm going to obey God rather than men. Or if God commands us to, to stop doing what God commands, right? Uh, so for example, if they were to say, you need to stop preaching the word, you need to stop gathering for worship, you need to totally shut down the church. Nope, <laughs> not going to obey that. We have to obey God rather than men. That first one's very, very easy and straightforward to understand. The second criteria for civil disobedience is this. When the government seeks to act outside of his limited role and sphere of God-given authority, because it no longer acts with the backing of divine authority, therefore the Christian's conscience is not bound, right? So as has been argued already, already, because the government's authority is derived and given from God, is necessarily limited to the spheres and, funct and functions that he prescribes. It may advise or make recommendations in those things outside of his limited role and sphere, but it cannot mandate and command obedience. Just as a husband, for example, can't command the obedience of somebody else's wife. That's not his sphere of authority. Or for example, another example is an elder. An elder can't command the direction of a private business owner's store. That's not his sphere of authority. They would be illegitimate because they're acting outside of their proper given or delegated authority. Thus, even for morally inconsequential issues, such as, for example, if the government were to mandate wearing a pink hat on Tuesdays, right? There's no moral quandary there. It's not sin for you to, to wear a pink hat on Tuesdays. It's just ridiculous. But we're not bound to submit to such a command because it's outside of the government's delegated authority from God to dictate personal fashion or clothing, right? That's not the government's function that's given to it by God. The early Christian martyr Polycarp, who was uh, AD 69 to 155, he understood that the civil magistrate only had delegated authority and his ultimate allegiance was to Christ. At his trial before the proconsul, he replied to them and said this, he said, quote, to thee I have thought it right to offer an account of my faith. For we are taught to give all due honor, which entails no injury upon ourselves to the powers and authorities which are ordained of God. But as for these, I do not deem them worthy of receiving any account from me, end quote. So even in the early church, they recognized this, that the government's authority is limited, delegated, and defined by God. Let's look at verse four, God's servant. It says here that the civil magistrate is God's servant. So this verse is introduced by the connecting word for, right? Or because, so because he is God's servant for your good, governments exist for the good of society and not their own selfish benefit. A government or official that acts solely for their own benefit acts actually outside of God's intended purpose and thus acts illegitimately. They exist not for their own gain, but for the good of their citizens whom they serve. That's actually why, uh, because of our Christian uh, heritage, we call our civil servants, servants, and our ministers, ministers, right? Ministers of parliament, minister of education, etc., right? See also, for example, Psalm 72, verse 12 to 14, and Psalm 82, verses 3 to 4, for some more examples of that. Uh, government officials are called civil servants, okay? Because they're supposed to serve our good as ministers. Literally, the word that Paul uses here in the Greek is diakonos, right? That sounds familiar. That's where we get the, 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 the English word deacon, right? That the government is God's 
deacon. The civil magistrate is God's deacon. He uses it actually twice in this verse. As Leon Morris notes in the Greek, the word God, God's comes first for emphasis. The ruler is God's servant, no less. And the servant reminds us that he is no more. He is not God, even if some rulers have had very exalted views of themselves and their functions. The word servant originally signified the service of a table waiter and denotes lowly service in general. However exalted that he may be among people, the ruler is nothing more than a lowly servant before God. End quote. Now, it's interesting that Bidag's entry for this word in verse 3 is, quote, one who serves as an intermediary in transaction, agent, intermediary, or courier. The, the civil magistrate is not a law unto himself. They are intermediaries and agents of God who must act according to his will. This is the same Greek term that Jesus actually uses in Matthew 20, verse 26, that if anyone wants to be great, he must become the servant, diakonos, of the rest. When Paul calls civil authorities God's deacons or servants, it implies that they are accountable to God and to serve according to his prescriptions because every servant has a master and they are accountable to their master. No servant is above their master. This speaks powerfully to the fact that civil government does not have unrestricted or unrestrained authority from God, but rather because its authority is derived from God, it's going to be accountable to him. So they will be held accountable. So see, for example, Isaiah 45, 1, Jeremiah 25, 9, Jeremiah 27, 6, and Jeremiah 43, 10. This was something recognized, by the way, by the early church as well. Irenaeus, born in uh, 130 AD, comments on civil government, quote, For since man, by departing from God, reached such a, pit, a pitch of fury as even to look upon his brother as his enemy and engaged without fear in any kind, in every kind of restless conduct and murder and avarice, God imposed upon mankind the fear of man as they did not acknowledge the fear of God, in order that, being subjected to the authority of men and kept under restraint by their laws, they might attain some degree of justice and exercise mutual forbearance through dread of the sword suspended full in their view. As the apostle says, For he beareth not the sword in vain, for he is a minister of God, an avenger for wrath upon those who do evil. And for this reason too, magistrates themselves, having laws as a clothing of righteousness, whenever they act in a just and legitimate manner, shall not be called in question for their conduct, nor be liable to punishment. But whatsoever they do to the subversion of justice, iniquitously and impiously and illegally and tyrannically, in these things they shall also perish. For the just judgment of God comes equally upon all, and in no case is defective. Earthly rule, therefore, has been appointed by God for the benefit of nations. End quote. Let's talk a little bit about sword power, because Irenaeus there just mentioned that he bears not the sword in vain. What does this mean? God gives to various established authorities different tools for their use in those spheres. So for the off church officer, for example, the elders, is the power of the word, right? Prayer, the sacraments, uh, baptism, and the Lord's Supper right? They're given the power of the keys, right? You see that in Matthew chapter 16. Uh, for heads of families, this is another sphere of authority, right? It's the power of the rod. The parents are given the power to discipline their kids. And for civil government, they're given the power of the sword. That's their tool for that sphere of authority. In the UBS handbook, it comments, in this verse, the sword is a symbol of the government's of officials' power to punish 
and the adverb in vain must be taken with the meaning of without the power to use it. You see, the sword, um, as Robert Mounts notes, is a symbol of the power delegated to the governing authorities to enforce acceptable social conduct. Here we have the biblical basis for the use of force by the government for the maintenance of law and order. The power to punish has been delegated by God to those who rule, end quote. So this text affirms that civil government is to bear the sword as the human instrument of God's wrath against the evildoer. It is the means by which we leave it to the wrath of God from, verse, from chapter 12, verse 19, right? When the government functions properly in a just society, it carries out God's justice against the evildoer in this temporal realm. Fitzmaier actually comments, opposition to legitimately constituted civil authority can only result in fear and rightly so. Paul is not speaking about what has been called in modern times civil disobedience. Such a notion would be anachronistic here. Legitimate though it may be, in the case of an unjust government or even of a government duly constituted that acts unjustly, end quote. So, government doesn't bear the sword in vain, which means that the government should punish the evildoer and the sword is an instrument of death actually and war as well so those are legitimate functions and you know it's beyond our purview here to talk about death penalty and capital punishment but this is the purpose of government is that in a world filled with evildoers that they would fear they would fear the sword that the government would bear it justly and righteously against evildoers to dissuade more sin in the world now, we have to ask the, the question, by what standard is the government supposed to discern these things of rewarding the good and punishing the evil? So, how is Paul defining the good and the bad? By what standard should the civil magistrate determine what is good and bad to know what to reward and what to punish, right? Because we live in a day where people are defining good and evil by all sorts of subjective and non-biblical standards. Well, I think the answer for Paul is obvious. It's not some secular or subjective standard, but it's God's standard. And this is obvious because right after this section, he quotes from the Decalogue from the Ten Commandments in verse 9. So therefore, the civil government is designed to reward good and punish evil according to God's righteous standards in his word, not their own made-up or culturally derived morality. So where the government says that abortion is good, and God says that we shouldn't murder, then it's the government that's in the wrong. They're not defining good and evil by God's standard. Proverbs 21, 15 says, when justice is done, it's a joy to the righteous, but a terror to evildoers. Therefore, civil authorities must perform their function of administering justice according to God's standards in his word. When they do not, they deviate from the derived authority that they've been entrusted with and their unlawful edicts then become invalid. The coercive sword power of the state also makes this dangerous when it veers outside of its divinely appointed rule and sphere of authority. This is why when the state intrudes into spheres that is not properly its own, it tends to towards coercion in those areas because you see the sword is the only tool that God gave it. So when the state exercises totalitizing power over, for example, education, you get forced indoctrination, right? And in mandatory public schools. In, if the state were to intrude in the family, you would get enforced childbearing limits as in communist China, right? Or how about if the state 
um, was to intrude on the authority and sphere of the church. You'd get an apostate puppet state church that only preaches state-approved propaganda. That actually happens in some countries and has happened in Nazi Germany and in communist China. This is why it's really important for the state to stay in its lane, to stay in its delegated authority and sphere. Because it wields a very powerful tool, the sword. And when it steps into a sphere that it's not meant to be, it brings that sword in. And that's not good news. Let's look at verse 5. For wrath and conscience sake, right? So this verse starts with the conjunction dio, which is an inferential. It's translated by the ESV as therefore. However, again, here's another uh, point where I think the ESV's translation is not great. It's a generic rendering and it misses some of the connective force here. It denotes here, this dio, it denotes the inference or result that is supposed to be self-evident. So thus it should be understood as for this reason, or it is self-evident that, well, what reason? It is this, because of God's wrath that is executed via the, the civil government's use of the sword, it is self-evident, or it is for this reason that we're to be subject for wrath's sake. Now, of note, the text simply says, uh, te orgin, right, uh, the wrath, but uh, God is the supplied subject by many translations. I think it's pretty clear. It's not the government's wrath, but it's God's wrath. Now, again, Paul's argument is based on the assumption that the ideal function of government here is in mind. Now, let's talk a little bit about subjection for conscience sake. We talked about how government's um, carrying out God's wrath, right? And that's why to be in subjection. But he also says for conscience sake, the second reason, right? The believer's conscience. Uh, he uses our articular phrase, te um, sunidesin, right? which uh, refers to the inward faculty of distinguishing right and wrong or your moral con consciousness, right, your conscience, uh, Paul probably has in mind matters re regarding the transformation and renewal of the mind, which he spoke about in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, uh, which brings about the believer's understanding of what God's good, pleasing, and perfect will is in all spheres of life, including the civil and political obligations. So the connection here of subjection for conscience sake I think strengthens the argument that I'm making that Paul has in mind a government that enforces justice according to God's righteous standards and not just some secular subjective standard of right and wrong. The Christian's conscience has to be captive to the word of God, to quote Martin Luther. Thus, resistance to a government rightfully enforcing God's just standards would actually go against, it, or at least should go against your conscience which is your moral compass to distinguish right and wrong according to God's standards. So conversely now, this is also why the Christian must resist a government that forbids what God commands and commands what God forbids. Our ultimate subjection and submission is always to God and then to the lesser authority that he's instituted. Let's look briefly now at verse 6 about taxation because it seems to just kind of plop in there randomly, but it's not random, right? Taxes help to fund the government's God-given function of enforcing justice as ministers or servants and deacons of God. Now, I just point out briefly here that taxes were not to fund a whole host of other functions not properly given to government. Remember, government sphere is limited. So things such as welfare, healthcare, education, all these things that governments and modern societies today just assume that is the role of government. Is that not actually ever explicitly given to government in the Bible, right? And we have to ask those questions and say, well, what is properly the government sphere? 
because that's then what should be funded by taxes. <laughs> Our governments today are far over bloated from the limited role that scripture gives to it and is a symptom of the totalitizing tendencies of much of the secular and Marxist ideologies which influence our societies and many policymakers. Now, it's important here to recognize another word that Paul uses to describe the civil office bearer. He's using this word here in this verse. It's not um, diakonos. It's actually liturgos, right? Does that sound familiar to you? <laughs> so liturgos is one engaged in administrative or cultic service, a servant or a minister, right? That's how Bidag defines it. You might recognize the sound of this term. It's actually where we got the word liturgy from in English. It has to do with a servant in an ecclesiastical setting or a church setting. That's remarkable that Paul uses a word such as that to describe the civil magistrate, right? It's amazing that he calls a government official a liturgos. So I think he's driving home this point that it's, he's actually God's servant and accountable to him, just as ministers in a church would be. You see, this is also the term that he uses when arguing for the rightness to pay taxes. It's very significant that in verse 6, where he talks about taxation, that we should pay our taxes, that he uses this word, because there's a similar argumentation that he uses to argue that ministers of the gospel deserve to earn their living by the gospel in 1 Timothy 5.18. This is then why Christians must joyfully pay their taxes and also their tithes. We support the ministers of God, both in the church sphere and in the civil sphere, right? Now, I know I covered really briefly the issue of taxation and how I think that there's some taxation that is inappropriate for government to take our money for. Now, remember that government doesn't have money. It has your money, right? Um, and I think it's up to the citizenry to hold government accountable when it starts to go outside of its spheres. Uh, because one of the reasons why we pay so much taxes is because the government is doing functions it was never designed to do. But that's a discussion, a really big discussion for another time because there's so many intricacies to work out with that. So I'll leave that on the shelf. Maybe we'll come back to it another time. Now, let's talk about this political statement that Paul is making. Here, Paul continues in his positive characterization of the government as God's servant of deacons from verse 4. And in historical context, he's joining in with others who applauded many of the beneficial actions of Nero, actually, who took on, uh, he, he took on behalf of the people of the empire during his early years. And Paul is wanting to help avoid any stumbling block to the peaceful expansion of the Christian mission, which could be caused by further perceived political disloyalty. Now, already... The Christian motto of declaring Christ is Lord and that there's no other name on the heaven given to men by which men may be saved, for example, Acts 14, Acts 4, sorry, 12, that cut against the Roman tradition that Caesar was Lord. You see, in those days, they said Caesar was Lord. And Paul and the Christi early Christians affirming that Jesus actually is Lord would have been understood as a political statement. There's even been an inscription actually found to Caesar Augustus that confirms this. It says, quote, salvation is to be found in no other save Augustus. And there's no other name given to men in which they can be saved. Sound familiar? You see, when the Christians said that, no, 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 it's not Caesar, but there's no other name other than Jesus to be saved. Nobody misunderstood that they were making a political statement there. 
You see, this was a commonly known and repeated phrase by pagans in submission to the Roman state, and they would offer their pinch of incense on the altar to Caesar before they went to worship their own gods. But the Christians, they couldn't give in to such compromise. When the apostles declared that it was in fact not Caesar, but Jesus is Lord, there was no doubt about the political implications, right? And they understood that the gospel that they preached had political implications, and the pagans and Jewish leaders, they understood it too because they persecuted them for that. However, many evangelicals today, we've forgotten that. You see, we, we tend to think that the political realm is dirty somehow, that we shouldn't be involved in it and we shouldn't speak to it. That's not true. If Christ is king, if Christ is sovereign over all, if he's sovereign over all spheres too, he said that all authority in heaven and on earth, everywhere, is given to him. Let's not forget that. Let's look at verse 7. Give that which is owed. Paul here echoes Jesus' teaching in the Gospels to give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. You can see that in Mark 12, 17, Matthew 22, 21, and Luke 20, 25. The obvious question is to whom are these things rightfully owed? Paul was addressing the specific situation of the Roman Christians at the time of his writing, encouraging them to pay their taxes, tolls, revenues, and respect to government authorities generally, and to honor the city officials particularly. The UBS handbook actually notes, quote, traditionally, the, the first word is taken to refer to those taxes paid by a subject nation to, to a nation that ruled over it. See, for example, Luke 20, verse 22. While the second word is a more general term referring to the taxes paid in support of a government. See, for example, Matthew 17, verse 25. Some suggest that the first word refers to direct taxes and the second to taxes paid indirectly, but it's doubtful that Paul makes any real distinction, end quote. So the principle here for us is that it's right and good for us to pay our taxes as they are rightly owed. However, we must also ask, as I previously noted, what is rightfully owed? Not all taxation is rightful to owe, because it might be unjust, it might be outside the government's rightful sphere. And in these areas, we should seek for reform through the means of influence that we have to achieve the Christian ideal of a well-ordered society and limited government. So I'm not advocating to rebel and to start a violent revolution to overthrow the government or um, that we should you know, just give up on paying taxes altogether. No, there's legitimate role for taxes. But because we recognize this, that is limited and we have a government that taxes well beyond its sphere, we should try to influence the, the civil society that we live in because there's a, a means by which we can, we can do that. God has given us this grace right now that we live in a society where we can vote, where we can talk to our MPs, write them, give them a call. They serve us, right? We pay their bills through our taxes. Don't underestimate the, the type of influence that you might be able to have in this, right? I'll, I'll just leave that there. Again, that's another big discussion to have. Let's talk about fear and honor just quickly. It's interesting to note that the final phrase of this verse, uh, the, the use of two terms, right? Phobos and timin. Uh, the first one, phobos, is rendered in the SVS respect, uh, which is one of its semantic range of meanings. That's one of the means it could be. However, I think this actually obscures the fact that it's the same root word that Paul uses in, in verbal form in verses 3 and 4 of fear. There it's translated fear. So we are to fear or respect the authorities who are given the sword to enforce God's justice on wrongdoers. So it's right for wrongdoers to fear, to legitimately be afraid 
of the government because a, a, a government that operates correctly according to God's design should be a terror to them. Furthermore, considering that the clause at the end of the verse, we are to honor those who are due honor. If one takes the position that Paul has in mind here, the excellent authorities, what I was arguing in the first verse, right? Then it's in reference to honoring those authorities who are actually honorable, who are actually praiseworthy. You see, Christians don't owe unqualified and unlimited obedience to any earthly institution or authority if, if they contradict God's law or act outside of his prescribed limits of jurisdiction or compel us to sin. Only God is owed unqualified, unconditional, and unlimited obedience in everything. And if we give that, if we give that level of obedience to anything else, if you give that to the state, it would be to give to Caesar what's rightfully only belongs to God. It would be to commit idolatry. However, we do owe legitimate subjection to the offices of authority because they are instituted by God. Jesus affirms this in John eleven nineteen to Pilate, right? Let's talk about our opportunities a little bit here, right? Because all of this can be a little bit overwhelming. Let's talk about what we have an opportunity for here. Because it can be tempting for some Christians to simply check out from any civic involvement, especially in the midst of such troubling times. We become discouraged and we want to ignore it, right? But such apathy is not what our response should be. You see, apathy is no more holy than, you know, being a zealot in the wrong direction. And it's actually not a good way to love your neighbor. We can't be apathetic. As Peter Schlumacher says, he notes this, quote, While during the biblical period, Christians could not exert any substantial influence on the state and its exercise of power, today, Christian citizens have the possibility of influencing the state institutions directly and indirectly in many countries and of taking upon themselves the responsibility of governing. Under these circumstances, Christians need principles which can be discussed and which will make it possible for them to combine their Christian faith with their responsibility as citizens of the state. Measured by the biblical texts and presuppositions, such principles are to be evaluated on the basis of whether they maintain the difference between the church as the body of Christ and the civil community whether they adequately bring to bear God's will in Christ on both forms of life and whether they relate church and state positively to one another, end quote. So thus, Christians should not abstract themselves from political engagement, but rather seek to be salt and light, even in those spheres, for the glory of God. What does salt do? Salt preserves. What does light do? It illuminates. And wherever Christians retreat from, whatever sphere they retreat from, including the governmental and political spheres, well, where there's no salt and no light, that means that that sphere is going to decay and become very dark. And that's what we've seen. The overall tone of Romans 13 is one encouraging subjection to properly ordered and ordained civil authorities by God. This should be our general disposition as Christians because we're not anarchists, we're not revolutionaries. However, it also describes the ideal role, the function, and the operation of these civil authorities, and Christians should aspire to see these implemented in our societies. We should seek to reform them, right? God has graciously given us opportunities in our present context to have legitimate avenues of influence through voting, through petitioning, through letter writing, right? Or, be, or even running for office, running for political office, becoming a member of the party, right? You can... Um, get on boards. You can speak with our elected representatives and you can even run for office yourself. Now, 
again, I say, don't underestimate the power of that. I underestimated that in times past. And recently, over the past two years, I've taken to reaching out to my local MP. And I've been pleasantly surprised that I get an audience with him. I've had several conversations with him, which have been very um, positive, been able to pray with him on the phone, actually. That's powerful. And what if, just dream with me for a bit, what if Christians took up the, the responsibility to engage meaningfully, thoughtfully, prayerfully with the elected officials? What kind of change could we see happen? See, Christians should take hold of these opportunities to seek reform according to God's word for the love of God and neighbor. Because a society that orders itself according to God's word is going to receive his blessing and is going to be the most free and just society. And that's a society that helps our neighbors to flourish. You see, you should also see this as a way to love your neighbors. I hope that these uh, considerations were helpful to you in thinking through Romans 13. Um, perhaps in the future, I'll follow up with some more uh, content on our relationship between God and government. There's many other complexities that need to be worked out. If you enjoyed this, please let me know. Leave some comments and feedback. Uh, maybe even leave some questions and we'll see if we can address those in future episodes. Thanks so much for listening in to this episode. Uh, make sure to subscribe, to leave a positive review, five stars on Apple, Google, whatever, uh, wherever you're catching this podcast. It helps this podcast grow and become more popular. If you want to share it with your friends, please feel free to do that. And until next time, Soli Deo Gloria. Thanks for listening to the Theotivity Podcast. If you found this content helpful or edifying, please leave a review on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, follow us on social media and consider sharing this episode to help Theotivity reach others as well. Check out Theotivity.com for resources, info on how to support, and subscribe to our monthly newsletter to stay up to date on all the latest content. Until next time, live and create to the glory of God.